As we look at John's gospel, we've been given some pretty clear indications of the disciples and what seems to be their stubbornness, their thick-headedness. If there's any, if there's ever been any indication that we should never stop learning ourselves because we tend to be more foolish than we think, I think it's evidenced here in the Gospel of John. See, last week, Dr. Lucas expounded on verses 1 through 7 of this chapter where Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. He says, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. So here, when we read this first statement in verse 8, we see it's problematic. It's like these guys haven't heard anything that Jesus has been saying. But it's not just problematic because of his lack of understanding. It's problematic because it presumes to force Jesus to provide what he wants, which is actually a beautiful picture, ironically, of exactly what Jesus is going to tell them to ask for in the following verses. See, Philip wants proof for himself. He wants proof. He wants Jesus to display God, to show him the Father. But in doing so, he fails to see exactly who Jesus is. So what did Jesus just say? In verses 6 through 7, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So that statement kind of sounds contradictory, doesn't it? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is a turning point in the life of the disciples. It's the turning point in all of history. You see, they failed to see the the connection that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. That to know him is to know the Father. But what he does say, he says, from now on, you do know. You have seen. See, Jesus has both condemned the disciples for their failure to see and know him, but he's now affirmed their ability to see the Father. How is this so? It's because, although they have yet to fully understand the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, they have still seen and witnessed the revelation of God as they watched Jesus, as he healed so many people who were broken, who were blind, who were crippled, as he raised from the dead, as he fed the multitudes. They've seen the revelation of God in the flesh through His Son. They may not have understood it, and clearly they haven't because they still haven't grasped it, but what Jesus is saying is you've seen it, and you're going to continue to see this. It's an invitation for us to watch Him, to watch His life. See, what I want us to see in this request, Philip may say in verse 8, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus says, have you not paid attention? But he's asking them, look at me. Watch me. If you want to see the Father, you'll continue to see me. Jesus does this and he ends this whole phrase. What did Philip ask for? He asked a question and he made a request. But Jesus calls for us to actually 
ask for something. He calls for us to boldly ask to be used for God's glory. You see, as they see Jesus in his mission, they will see with new eyes what it looks like to be a disciple. As they see Jesus and what he is doing, they'll understand this is what the Father has promised. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And this is what it means for me now to see the Father and to believe. So my proposition this morning, Jesus calls for us to boldly ask to be used for God's glory. And I want us to look at the things that we must see first in order to know how to ask. We may not yet have a faith that is bold and clear and confident. But the only way for that faith to come about is not by works of our own, but it is by looking to Christ and seeing who he really is. I know it may sound like I've said that again and again, but the only way only way that we will grow as Christians is for us to continue to look to Christ. To see who He is, what He has done, because clearly these men who've walked alongside Him for years, they've slept with Him out in the open. They've seen Him perform miracles. They still haven't grasped who He is. What does it look like to understand who Christ is? We must see what it looks like to submit to the Father's will, to ask to be used for God's will, for God's glory, and not our own. So let's look at this first point as we look at these opening verses. We need to see that Jesus is trustworthy because he lives for the Father's will, as evident by his life, his love, and his sacrifice. Jesus responding to Philip's question, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. He says to him, have I been with you so long you still don't know me? Have I been walking with you so long that you still do not know me? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. In my argument, which I've made as we work through the gospel, that the disciples are just worldly minded is, I think, evident here. For why would they keep demanding that? It's because they need assurances that they're still in the right spot because they don't yet trust that Christ truly is Lord over all. If they saw that Jesus was the Son of God, that He's God in the flesh, what would keep them from trusting Him? Because what could be against them if the Lord is with them? For us to grasp the what and why of Jesus' question, we must look back at those words he had already spoken. He'd said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. You know me because you've seen me. But see, he, this isn't the first time that Jesus has made this type of claim. We've seen this in his I am statements that we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John. That I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of life. He has made these, cl- these claims that he is divine. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh. But they still weren't getting it. One that is very clear here is comes in John 10, verses 24 through 30. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I don't know if you remember what happened after Jesus made that statement. The Jews rose up and attempted to stone him. For his claim was a claim of divinity. Yet, clearly, this happened much longer before this current verse that we're in in chapter 14. Four chapters ago, the disciples saw that, heard what he said, yet they still haven't understood. But here's what's remarkable. We need to see that Jesus is trustworthy because he lives for the Father's will as evident in his life, his sacrifice. What's actually remarkable is that Jesus is actually about to fulfill Philip's request. Remember what's going on during this night. It's Jesus' last night with his disciples. It's Jesus' last night before he is betrayed and put on a cross where he accomplishes our salvation. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, it's not until you see that I and the Father are one, that I am the Son of God. When you see that and you see me on the cross, you will see the Father and his glory. The Father's love for you. Father's desire to save. Jesus is going to demonstrate God's glory by revealing it through his death and resurrection. All of his signs have been pointing to the truth that Jesus was sent by the Father. He says, I've been sent. I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is saying, look at me. I'm not speaking on my own authority. If I was Would I be walking to my death? Would I willingly go to my destruction if it was on my own authority? But I do this not on my own, but because the Father has sent me, and he sent me for you. Jesus was sent by the Father, and it's all happening according to God's promised plan. All happening. See, these signs have not been enough, but Jesus will perform his greatest and last sign by demonstrating God's faithfulness through his obedience. Obedience even to the point of death. So I want to have, as we look at these points, this first point, that we must see that Jesus is trustworthy. We need to see that Jesus is trustworthy because of his life. Well, this is my application, a question for you. We must trust Christ with everything, for he has shown the Father to be faithful. See, Jesus is asking his disciples to observe and conclude. Is he not the fulfillment of all the Father's promises? He says, all right, you still haven't seen the Father. You need to know. Have you not listened to what I've been saying? Look back. I am the fulfillment of all of those promises. And I'm going to the cross as the fulfillment of that promise to save and redeem you. Will you look at me? Will you see the Father? Is he not demonstrating faithful submission? And going to the cross. And faithful submission to fulfill God's will. God's desire. Is that not reason to trust him? Is that not reason to see who he really is? We need to trust Christ with everything. For he's shown the Father to be faithful. 
And he's demonstrated faithfulness in himself as well. We must see that Jesus calls us to be participants in God. (coughs) God's redeeming work. (coughs) Jesus calls us to have faith. (coughs) Excuse me. Not just to be saved, (coughs) but to be participants in God's. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm still struggling with a head cold. John 14, 12 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You see, we must trust Christ. We must understand what he's called us to do. He's not calling us to do something that he hasn't done himself. He is demonstrating submission. He is demonstrating faithfulness. He is demonstrating the faithfulness of God by submitting and going to the cross in our stead. When he's telling Philip, you ask to see the Father, he's saying, look, look at what I'm doing. Look at how it fulfills what God has promised all along. Think back to what the prophets have said. Think back to, all the way back to Genesis. We started in Genesis this morning. What is the purpose of God's creation? What is he seeking to accomplish? And after the fall, how is he going to accomplish redemption? He's going to do it through his son. But Jesus says in verse 12 here, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Jesus goes ahead and says, look, you need to see the Father through my faithfulness, but know I'm calling you as my disciples to join in on this work. He says, you'll do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So when we first read these words, you may say the question you, might, you may say, greater? How in the world will he ever do anything greater? Will we ever do anything greater than what Jesus has done? Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> Carson sums it up as this. He says, in short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as the former belong to an age of clarity and power. They're introduced by Christ's sacrifice, his exaltation. We've got to look at what Christ has done. He's saying, you're going to do greater works than what I've done. Not talking about his sacrifice on the cross. He's talking about, look, you've walked alongside me all along. You've seen what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be at hand. For the sick to be healed. For the lost to be restored. For the broken to be mended. You've seen these things. I am sending you to accomplish my will. I'm sending you. Jesus has already, in other words, we get to proclaim Christ's work. That's how I want to think about that. What does it look like for us to do something greater? We actually have the privilege, the privilege of proclaiming what Christ has done and then living it out day to day. We have the privilege of declaring the good news. Look at what Christ has accomplished. My question, though, is have we seen and believed in what Christ has done? See, Jesus has already exemplified selfless sacrifice to be his mission. Selfless sacrifice that will bring about the will of God to redeem a people for himself. And this is the basis of the empowering promises that he gives in the next verses. You see, the title of this sermon is, What Will You Ask For? 
Honestly, we ask for a lot of things. But I'm afraid very few of them are actually what Christ is talking about here. We ask for a lot of things, but I don't know if we have truly considered what Christ is saying here. See, my third point is we must see that Jesus' promises to give us all that we need to accomplish God's glory. Jesus says in verse 13 and 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And I've heard this verse preached in ways that are shameful. Those who would tell you to name and claim anything because Jesus would give you anything you ask, they are not speaking the truth. Any interpretation of these verses that tells you that God wants you to get whatever you want is moronic, it's ignorant, it's sinful, and I will say it is flat out demonic. It may sound harsh, but we're dealing with terrible, frightening truths here. You see, for you to get what you want as a sinful, broken person is going to lead to the brokenness of thousands more. Do we not see the consequences of our actions when we seek what we want apart from what God wants? God doesn't want you to have all that you want. God wants you to have all of Him. Can we not see that that is grace? That that is our greatest reward? What do you think Jesus is wanting the disciples to see as He's preparing them? Remember, this is His comforting sermon to them as he's preparing to go to the cross as they're he's trying to prepare them understand what's about to happen please see who i am see that this what looks like tragedy to you is actually your joy before through it christ is accomplishing our salvation what is he calling to the disciples to do when he says ask anything in my name he's saying look what i'm going to do is to accomplish salvation so that you can continue the work that i've begun here on this earth This promise is building off of what Jesus said in verse 12. We're going to do even greater things. We're going to proclaim the good news of Christ and we get to see the good news of the gospel expand. When he's talking to those disciples, through those 12 men, through those men, the entire world would be reached. They would go forth across all of the Roman Empire and beyond. And it would continue through all who would believe through their faithful preaching of the gospel. See, we can do great things, and Christ is calling us to ask for the strength, ask for anything, so that we might see those great things done. But my fear is that we've looked at this verse, and we've failed to see what exactly Christ has called us to. You see, the very attitude that Jesus is trying to address in his response to Philip is this self-centered mindset. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll trust you. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. See, his disciples, they're still thinking in earthly terms. They're still thinking of how they can ride the coattails of Jesus to comfort and power, and Jesus is trying to nip that in the bud because what they're about to see will look contrary to anything this world believes. 
They don't yet realize that God's will is redemption and redemption through suffering and sacrifice. So when Jesus is telling him to ask anything in my name, he's asking, he's saying, ask anything in my cause for what I am here for. It will be answered because it will represent Jesus who is completely in line with God's will. Remember what he says? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. When we ask in Christ's name, we are asking for the strength, for the empowerment, for the wisdom, for the might to do what God wills, not what we will. How will you know God's will? Well, you've got it right in front of you. God has made himself known through his word. In the beginning, think back to John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has made the Father known. So my question for you is, we want to see that Jesus promised, he promises to give us all that we need to accomplish God's glory. Do you seek that? Are you asking for that? Because my fear is, is that we've been asking for all these things, how to build our own kingdoms. We still fail to see Christ is calling us to follow his example. And what is his example? It's selfless sacrifice for the will of God. Have you been asking for the will of God. You may ask the question, is it not God's will to relieve me of suffering and trials? Should I not ask for the relief from those things? Yes, it is fine to ask for those things, but it's not necessarily that that promise of relief will come in this lifetime. Just think, what did Jesus just talk about with his disciples? He says, where I'm going, you cannot come yet. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Our hope is not in this world. And Jesus has been seeking to eradicate that belief. God is using the suffering and the trials of this life to shape you and sanctify you. So we just saw that in the life of Peter when we looked at him. We looked at his failures. Peter, who is about, Jesus told him he was going to deny him three times. Peter denies him. Peter's broken. God uses his brokenness to prepare him to lead the church. God's using our sufferings, our trials. So is it right that we should ask God, Lord, take these trials. I want my life to be more comfortable here and now. No, what we should be asking for is, Lord, how can you use me, use my trials for your glory to make your name known so that I can continue continue the work of Jesus Christ in my life to make known your desire to redeem and to save. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, we're called to ask for all that we need to accomplish God's glory. 
we can do so knowing that our hope is in the one who conquered sin and promises that he is preparing a place for us. Our hope is not in this world. Jesus was seeking to get that out of the disciples' mind. He wanted them to see their hope was in what he was going to prepare for them. Their hope was in what he was accomplishing on the cross. The more we realize that hope is outside situation, we will be empowered to live according to our hope even in the midst of trial. Think, what were they about to go through? The disciples were about to go through the most trying time of their lives. Their Savior was going to be crucified. But what does Jesus pray for them? That they would escape suffering themselves? That they would see and have a good life and gain power and control? No, he prays that you would ask in my name. See what I am going to accomplish. How tragic and self-centered is it then if we read these verses and assume Jesus is only here to give us what we want like some magic genie. I just finished a book called The Liberator. It follows the life of Felix Sparks, a U.S. Army officer during World War II. He was an officer during the campaign to liberate Europe. Sparks helped lead the Thunderbirds of the 157th through Sicily, Italy, France, and finally through Europe. The battles that he and his fellow soldiers fought were devastating. In fact, they suffered the highest casualty rate of any division in the U.S. Army in World War II. During the initial invasion of Italy, his battalion had a 75% casualty rate. In his own unit... He came out of one battle only to find out after scrambling to get back behind Allied lines that it was only him and one man that survived out of 230. They continued on, though. The war had broken or nearly broken many of the men. Over a year later, as they entered into Germany, the fighting became even more fierce. More and more of the men said, is it worth it? All this suffering that we've had. Is it worth it? They became disillusioned with why they were fighting. Is it really worth it to put up with these these people who want to cause so much suffering so far from home? Why did they have to suffer so much? They'd lost so many of their brothers. They'd been shelled and shot at so much they could barely sleep. But then... Right at the end of the war, just days before Hitler would kill himself, Sparks and his men came upon the concentration camp of Dachau. There they were exposed to the horrors of the Holocaust, the atrocities that the Nazi regime had committed against millions of innocents. Even though days before they were questioning all that they had done, would it be worth it? Would this suffering be worth it in the end? But standing inside the gates of that concentration camp that day, one of the men, he said, he would go through it all again. He said he would have pushed even harder. He would have suffered even more if he had known 
that he could get there any earlier and save any more. That was the consensus of Sparks. That was the consensus of the entire group of men who liberated that camp. So my question in thinking why Jesus is asking for us to ask for anything in his name, why that should be, we should be asking for anything that will help us fulfill God's mission, I want to ask you, when we get to heaven, what do you think the consensus will be? Will it be that we wish we had things a little easier here? Will it be that we wish we could have just had a few more possessions? That we could have, you know, just a few more days off? That we could have, you know, just had a little bit more money? That we would have, you know, spent more times by ourselves instead of reaching others? What do you think our consensus will be when we get to heaven? See, we're in a war ourselves, but what if those men of the Thunderbirds in World War II, what if they had constantly been asking for a break in the battle? What if they had been unwilling to sit in their foxholes eating K-rations and freezing as mortars blew up all around them? What if they had been unwilling to take the next hill? Here we are as Christians, so often asking for an easier life. Asking for things to be better, for the struggle against sin to be simpler. We're failing to realize the reality that we live in. We're failing to see the war that rages all around us. We're failing to see the cross for the brutal, terrible sacrifice that it was. And we're failing to see the goal at the end of this fight. We're failing to ask for strength to live according to God's will and for God's glory. So I ask, what will you ask for? I've got some questions. Are we asking for the strength to suffer well? I've seen that exemplified by many of my brothers and sisters here. I think of the trials that J.D. and Peggy have just gone through, battling cancer, having surgery. Their request, may God be glorified through my suffering. Through whatever trial that you're facing right now, whether it be health, whether it be financial difficulty, your job situation, your family that you're trying to help and is so difficult, are you asking, God, would you be glorified through this trial? Lord, I know what the goal is. I know what redemption looks like. I know the hope that has been promised to me for you've prepared a place before me. Lord, give me strength to live as Christ has lived so that I might do greater things, so that greater things might be seen. Are we asking for the weapons to push back the efforts of Satan? What do I mean when I ask this question? Are we asking for strength to stay away from sin? Strength to say, look, there's a clear indication. There's injustice happening here. Am I going to stand for justice and truth so that I might point 
to the one who is just, the one who is truth? Are we asking for the wisdom to discern that which is right, that which is wrong, and the path that we must fight so that we might take the next hill? Are we asking for holiness? Are we asking for discipline, saying, Lord, I know there's sin in my life that I must get rid of. Lord, I know there's sin in my life that is preventing me from proclaiming this good news to so many others. Lord, may you shape me and make me. Make me holy. Sanctify me. Shape me so that I might proclaim your good news and be an effective tool for your kingdom. So that you, Lord, might be glorified. Are we asking for the boldness to call out our AWOL brothers and sisters? That's a hard one. We read in Hebrews chapter 3 in our Bible study earlier this week, there must not be any hint of sin, any hint of unholiness. Are we calling out our brothers and sisters, saying, look, look at the battle we've been called to. Are you going to fight this battle with me? Do you believe the gospel that Christ has redeemed you and saved you? Then you can't be, as Paul says, a a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. He's focused on the battle. He's focused on the charge given him. Are we going to call our brothers and sisters to, look, you need to live a life of obedience because if your life isn't following Christ, if it's not following the will of God, then you are saying, I don't believe the promises of Christ. Are we asking for the wisdom to withstand the schemes of the devil in the world? We're going to be distracted by everything. Satan's throwing everything he can at us. Are we asking for wisdom so that we might not be caught off guard? So that we might know the truth of what God has to say? So that we might be effective in proclaiming this good news? See, I think like Philip and the disciples with him, we've been asking for all the wrong things because we've been consumed with ourselves. You've heard me say it before. We're trying to build up our own kingdoms. We failed to see that we're here to build up the kingdom of God. What then can we begin asking Jesus for that will glorify the Father in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, Mark records the beginning of Jesus' ministry with these words. And it's really this simple, yet it's difficult to work out. That's why we're called to depend on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does it look like for us to ask for that strength? Well, first, we must acknowledge our need, our failure. We must repent of our sins, we must repent of our failure to look and to see Christ and his redeeming work. This isn't something that happens just when you become a Christian, though. It's something we're called to do again and again and again. Repent, for I am a sinner, but he is the one who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What does it look like to believe in Christ and ask him to give you strength to step 
into the work of the kingdom, it looks like a life that reflects constant repentance and a constant and growing dependence on Christ himself. So my question for you today is, when you ask the Lord for something, are you asking for his will to be done? Are you asking for his kingdom to come? Do your requests before the Lord reflect repentance and faith in his goodness, in his will, in his holiness? Are we demanding that Jesus submit to our will? Jesus had that lesson for the disciples. He sought to correct them, to remind them, look, if you believe in me, you'll do greater things than what I've done here. Do we want to be a people who do greater things Do we want a people who will be used by Christ to usher in his kingdom amongst a lost world? To do so, we need to know what we are to ask. We need to know that and recognize that so many of the times we've asked for the wrong things. So let's be a people who repent, who confess our failure, and say, look, I want to be used by Christ. I want to be used by God for his glory because that's what we were ultimately created for. So let's be a people who repent. I ask you to pray with me as the praise team comes up and we prepare to take a communion.